to our final guest. She is a celebrated poet, short story writer, a novelist and playwright. It's like model slash actress with Deborah Levy. It kind of goes on and on and on. Um, the devastatingly dark swimming home was shortlisted for the booker, uh, the man booker, I should say. Um, and Black Vodka um, was shortlisted uh, for the BBC Short Story Prize. Notting Hill Editions will soon publish Things I Don't Want to Know. And I just received the PDF yesterday. I haven't finished reading it, but it's going to be a beautiful book. And it's her response to George Orwell's essay, Why I Write, which is a kind of memoir. So anyway, she's here to read it to us tonight. I'm thrilled to have. Deborah Levy here. Please welcome her now. I am, I am. I think it's polite. Um, well, I've just come back from the German book tour of Swimming Home, which translated in German is Heimswimmen. And I've been reading it with uh, simultaneous German translation. And I thought tonight it would be really great to read from Black Vodka, which is my new anthology of stories. And because Damien's theme is troubled and troubling women, Damien, I thought I'd read uh, a short story that's three pages uh, and that's one kind of um, woman. And then I'd go on to a short, short story called Vienna. So I'll just get stuck in. This is called Placing a Call. You are telling me something I don't want to hear. You are telling me the honest truth. We are standing in the garden and it's dusk. There are rain clouds in the sky and midges, and someone is planting a rose bush in the garden next door. The telephone is ringing. I run into the house and pick up the receiver. The telephone is pressed against my ear. Someone is calling, and I am answering. I'm saying hello into hard plastic, but I hear a dial tone and the ringtone happening at the same time. Someone is missing. Someone is trying to get through. And then I remember there is a bird in the garden that imitates a telephone when it sings. I can see it now in the tree in the garden where you are telling me the honest truth. It is singing in an old-fashioned ringtone. It is singing like a landline. I run back into the garden. We are standing in the garden and it's autumn and there's a bird in the tree that imitates a telephone when it sings. Your hair is silver, but you are not old. Under your soft silver hair is your skull with your central nervous system inside it. It's dusk and it's started to rain. The roots of the eucalyptus tree that grows in the garden are spreading under the house. Our daughter is sleeping inside the house under a photograph of the sea. She is covered in a thick blanket. Her bed stands on a green carpet. There are two stains on the carpet. You are wearing a white shirt and a suit and your soft silver hair is your skull. 
while you speak the honest truth, I am thinking about the time we ate horse steaks in Paris. The waiter served the dish of the day, and the dish of the day was horse. It was like eating a unicorn in the 21st century. My iPod was playing a song we'd never heard before. You untangled the headphones and pressed them into your ears, and you lifted my fingers and pressed them into your mouth. But now we are standing in the garden, and the telephone bird has stopped making calls no one answers. The car alarms and police sirens have stopped too. Silence is cruel in cities where missing people need to hide in noise. But we are standing in the garden in the rain, and you have not stopped telling me the honest truth. And I wonder if the telephone bird will one day learn to sing computer startup sounds. Your silver hair is wet. Our daughter is pretending to sleep inside the house under a photograph of the sea. And I'm listening to the rain, which always makes sorrow bigger and hard things softer. I walk towards you, bumping into things on the way. Kissing you is like new paint and old pain. It is like coffee and car alarms in a dim stairway and a stain and it's like smoke. I am looking into your eyes and I can't get in. You have changed the locks and I have an old key that doesn't fit. And our daughter is making her way across the garden towards us, holding her thick blanket. You are telling me you are dead. And I say, yes, I know you are. We miss you. And since you've gone, I've forgotten all my PIN numbers. I can't remember the code to my gym locker or where the honey is or where the blue pillowcase is. And could you tell me again where exactly the sea is in that photograph? And this story, very different, is titled Vienna. Before I forget, Margaret's voice is low and vague. I want to test my new microwave. He nods as if he's a secretary taking notes from some inscrutable executive director who wears purple lipstick to frighten her more nervous staff. She rips the silver foil from a carton of languistines and slides them into the microwave that still has the price taped to its side. He watches her bend her long neck to check the minutes and seconds. While she waits, she tells him she has no idea why her husband has bought her a microwave. When the timer pings, she takes out the languistines and places them in front of him in a delicate blue china bowl. He cracks the pink and grey shells with his fingers and sucks the white flesh into his mouth, suddenly aware of her accent, which he can't place, but makes him think of wolves. He looks down at the frayed cuffs of his shirt sleeves 
and notices a small rash on the back of both his hands. Does she know he has brought his agitation and turbulence into the white walls of her apartment? The rash on his hands is the memory of saying goodbye to his small children when he left the family house, knowing he was never going to return. Magret walks across the carpet towards a sleek black answering machine and presses the play button. A man's voice speaks to her. He suspects it's the authoritarian voice of her new Italian husband. Mi manchi. What does it mean? He understands that her husband has told her he loves her, but wants her to tell him anyway. It means now I'm going to pull down the blinds and you and I are going to take off our clothes. For the first time all evening, he feels frightened. He wraps his fingers around the pulse of his wrist and shuts his eyes. When he opens his eyes, Magrette is naked. Her long limbs are warm, he discovers, moving his cold hand between her legs and leaving it there, while the hidden boiler fills the room with its own peculiar sounds. He likes her disdain for small talk after sex. Relieved, she does not ask him to exchange small confidences. Pleased not to have to tell her about his wife and children and temporary bedsit and unpacked suitcase. He asks her a question in the language of his father, a language he has almost forgotten how to speak. I don't know what you're saying. She sits up and shakes down her hair. It's Russian for, do you have children? I do not. Now he knows she does not have children. This is one of the few things he knows about her. He knows she does not need him. He knows she can cook languistines in a brand new microwave. He knows she is married, that's all he knows. She is Middle Europe, he thinks. She is Vienna, she is Austria, she is a silver teaspoon, she is cream, she is schnapps. She is the sound of polite applause. She is a chandelier, she's a velvet curtain. She is spun from money. She smells of burnt sugar, she is snow, she is fur, she is leather, she is gold. She is someone else's property. He holds out his arms inviting her back to her own bed, inviting Middle Europe to share his wealth, to let him steal some of her silver, to let him make footprints across her snow and drink her snaps. Margaret ignores his invitation to return to his thin white arms. My husband wants me to learn Italian, so he tests me on the seasons. I have to say in perfect Italian all the months, January, February, March, until I get to December. And then he corrects my accent. But you speak Italian, don't you? He hides his hands under the sheet, hands that are livid from itching. Not well enough for my husband. He realizes he does not know where she is from or if she works or why she lets him have sex with her. 
What is your first language? Oh, there are so many languages. She flicks an invisible light switch and the room fills with an unwelcome white light. I am going to swim in the pool downstairs. He nods. He has been dismissed by Middle Europe, who has plans that do not include him. Again, he feels foolish, not sure what he wants from her or why he feels so excited when she calls him to say she's in town. Good night, Margaret. As he walks to the tube station, he thinks about the snow of his childhood and all the trams he rode on with his sister. He thinks about the wars and famines his parents lived through and about the 1107 that leaves promptly every Sunday morning from Zurich, where his ex-wife and children live. He thinks about Magrette swimming in the cold pool below her apartment, her head surfacing, her mouth opening to take a breath. He knows she is dead inside, and he is aroused that this is so, and he takes out a cigarette and lights it. He thinks about how there is life with rye bread and black tea, and there is life with champagne and wild salmon. He can live without champagne, but he cannot live without his children. That is a grief he knows he cannot endure, but he must endure, and he knows his hands will itch forever. He thinks about feeling used, teased, abused, and mocked by Middle Europe. And he thinks about the 20th century that ended at the same time as his marriage. Quite wisely shunning the uh, second <laughs> sugary stool. That was fantastic hearing you, hearing you read there. Um, the stories are all, in a sense, some kind of love story. Um, none of them are particularly happy, it has to be said. Um, but some of them are, um, are, are quite sexy, and others of them are very, very, very sad. And I just wanted to talk about the ones that you read from just then. Middle, Middle Europe is a common theme. Itchy hands is a, <laughs> is a common factor as well. But let's start with Middle Europe. Why does it sort of haunt all these stories? Um, I guess when I visited Vienna... I had a play on, and um, I spent quite a lot of time in, in the cafes in Vienna, and um, I saw, uh, drinking a glass of sparkling water, a really um, almost dead woman, by which I mean she'd concealed everything, everything that could be read by anyone else, and so we all know that, you know, it's what you don't reveal that's more interesting than anything else and um, she just sat there sipping her water and uh, staring out at the um, in the road and uh, after a while the waiter brought her a, a little dish of something and uh, she started to eat it uh, very very disdainfully as if she had contempt for what she was eating like a cat like a cat and so you know what it's like. And I, I actually went up to her and I said, what's that dish? And she said, it is goose livers simmered with onion. 
And suddenly I knew that I was going to write Vienna. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and the etchy hands, talk to me about that, because lots of the characters in the book have um, unexplained... This, this is a very appropriate issue for Soho. Lots of characters in the book have unexplained rashes um, and kind of etchings and, and bodily manifestations um, in, in much the same way that, that, that Jim in Susie's book was talking about. His body, their bodies are responding to something they may not be conscious of. Oh, well. Does someone else have a rash in my book? Yes, several people. And oh. in Swimming Home as well, there's, um, um, the character with the guns has True, his, his Mitchell, rashes. Mitchell. Yeah. I guess I'm interested in symptoms because um, because characters when I write characters what are they they just it's it's about ways of behaving and it's also about uh, symptoms what 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 can't be said that the body says something like that mm. and so I liked it that he uh, that he was agitated and turbulent and messed up and felt he was a, just a bit, a, you know, a bit of scum. But somehow he'd been lucky enough to be uh, invited into this woman's arms. And uh, so um, his backstory is interesting to me. Um, and swimming, again, is something yeah. that recurs through through lots of the stories. We were talking about Alice earlier. Alice is one of the characters in the story who goes swimming. This is quite terrifying. I don't think I could ever do it. She goes swimming in a mine that has, that has filled up with water and there's this horrible sense that at any point, like a plug being pulled out, that she might be sucked down into the, into the middle of the earth. But swimming is... It requires... Lots of the characters do it or they spend time <laughs> in water. I know. Um... Well, I swim every day because um, writing is essentially an unhealthy activity. And the thing about writing is that you know it's going really well when you can't feel your legs and you're in, an un- and you're in a terrible posture and you've got a <laughs> backache. So you know, you know it's going quite well when that's happening. And, um, but, um, oh, so you, where, where do you swim? Where, do you swim in, what, in Hampstead or in a pool? Or? I swim in um, the ponds in, in, on Hampstead Heath and I swim in warm swimming pools. And uh, ever since I wrote Swimming Poem, people invite me to swim with them. In, in God, like, have they like, not read the book? Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> like a really cold sea, you know, in December. <laughs> I go, no. And, um, but I guess for Swimming Home... Um, there are there are a number of things about water. I read an obituary for a writer that not many people have heard of. She's called Anne Quinn. Does that ring a bell? No, not for me. Yes, some some not. She um, she was writing in the sixties. She was a working class arty girl living with her <laughs> mum, a bit like um, Stevie Smith lived with her mum. And um, she wrote a book called Berg, which was published by uh, John Calder. And I love this book. I read it in my 20s. And while I was writing Something Home, I was researching various things. And I came across an obituary uh, for Anne Quinn. And it said, in 1973, Anne Quinn went for a swim and never returned. 
And it was just like the saddest thing I'd ever written, uh, ever, ever um, read. And uh, it was that way of describing something, you know, going for a swim and never returning. Did she commit suicide? She did, she did. Uh, She was just demoralised and felt hopeless and no one would publish her books. Lots of writers in the audience um, were like, yes, I understand exactly how she felt. But return from your swim. But I think there is this, if, if you are a swimmer, there is that kind of, you know, when you swim out to the horizon and you think, well, I don't really have to ever come back. You can just really, you know, thoughts drift and I get ideas and and then and then you come back because we have to. You have to come back. Yeah, we do. Um, Kitty Finch is a, a troubling and, and troubled female, if ever there was one. She turns up at the start of the book in the swimming pool and I was rereading the book and I thought, actually, it's, it's perfect that she... Arrives in a pool because it's like a water birth, isn't it? In a sense, <laughs> it's like she's she's this kind of fully fledged person who just arrives, and they see her in the swimming pool and they think, is she a bear or what is what mm. is she? And she's she's this ma- magical in a sense person, I think. In a way, she is. Um, there's a lot of sexual excitement from the men when they see a naked woman swimming in the pool. Um, so she's on her stomach. And uh, she's got her arms out like a starfish. And uh, they start to say, oh, is it a bear? If it's a bear, I'm going to shoot it. But the women in, the, in that first opening know it's a young woman. They really do. And uh, so the thing about Kitty Finch is that um, I wanted her to be naked, mostly all the way through the book because I wanted all the characters to project something onto Kitty Finch and um, and I was also exploring the way you know we scrutinise women and the way women scrutinise women so I thought don't just take all her clothes off and Kitty Finch stares right back she's the daughter of the woman who <coughs> cleans the villa and she stares back and she tells everyone what she sees. And that's very disconcerting. It's very troubling. Yeah. It's very, I mean, it, I, I, I think that's the thing about her, that she was very compelling. And I, I wanted to know what awful thing she was going to say next because <laughs> it might be the thing that people were thinking. Um, and I thought that was very attractive. But it must have been quite hard to write her. Or, was, or does she come to you very easily? I don't know. Uh, when th- did you write the book? Because it was a long time before it was published. Yeah, um, I started writing the book around 2009, and um, it was a very hard book to write because I wanted it, I wanted to, to structure a book in a way that could be read on any number of levels because it could be read as a sunny holiday that goes wrong. And I thought, that's fine. That, that's, that's fine by me. So I had to create that surface. And, um, and then everything else uh, would come crawling through the, the surface, if you like. And um, it was a shattering book to write. It was, it's about big, confronting themes. And um, I think I was a different writer by the time I finished it Home. from the one that began it. Yeah. How are you different? I think I just cared very much more about... Um, I, 
had an argument in Swimming Home about madness. Um, I hate it when people like raise their finger and, and go, he's, 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 he's mental. And I wanted someone in the book to slap down that finger and make it just much more complicated and to see and to sort of explore that idea of um, how thin the membrane is between insanity and sanity and how do we live with madness. When I'm on tour with Swimming Home, often I'm uh, mostly young women put letters into my hand and I think, oh... I sort of know what they're going to be about, and they are about experiences of mental suffering. And um, so when I sign their books, I always say thank you for your words before I've read their words. Um, And um, in Germany recently, um, a woman came up to me and she said, oh, my sister, we live with her madness and she lives with ours. Uh, Yesterday I had to get her back from a bank she'd gone into a bank in Berlin and she'd taken off all her clothes and she just sat on the floor and so you know I think I think I wanted to give Kitty Finch dignity and to make her fiercely clever and to make her troubled and fragile and she's just complicated we don't have to love her but we have to find her compelling and uh, I think there is this idea that women have to write likable characters. And um, the idea that we have to really be pleasing is not a good thing to have to be. And that gets an airing in Swimming Home and in Black And in Black Vodka, yeah. no, absolutely. Do you respond to those letters that, that, that you get given? No. <laughs> because, because I feel that the, the real business, the, the real thing that's happened is writing the letter. And that um, it's, it's never happened to me before. But it's like with Kitty Finch giving the poem. It's very odd, yeah. yeah because in, in my book, Kitty Finch arrives in the south of France and she's written a poem and she's, she wants to give it to a famous poet she's stalked on his summer holiday to read. And so... It, it is quite odd that. So it's just thank you, genuinely thank you for your words. Yes. And I mean it. I'll take mm. a couple of questions now. Sylvia. Yeah. So um, a question from from Sylvia about um, how, having been born in apartheid South Africa and your father having been a member of the ANC and I think being a a prison, a political prisoner for four years or five years. So how, how, I mean, that obviously informed your writing, but how how did it? Yeah. I've just written about that for the first time. I've been avoiding writing it. I don't think I've been ready to write it. And it's, uh, there's a chapter in the long autobiographical essay um, all about that, and it was very confronting to write it. But because I'd stolen George Orwell's four headings <laughs> in his essay, Why I Write, he had, um, 
uh, Orwell identified four headings that sum up his drive to hammer the typewriter. Yeah. Political purpose, aesthetic enthusiasm, historical impulse, and sheer egoism. So I found the th- the, that, that okay, and I give, I give all those headings a spin from a female writer's point of view. But when I got to historical impulse, Sylvia, I thought, I have to go there. I actually have to. It would just, you know, I've taken his heading. I've got to honour it. And so I do write about being five. It's that time when Nelson Mandela is arrested and, and uh, Taba and Becky and my father. And uh, my father, from a child's point of view, disappeared when I was five and turned up when I was nine. And, um, and I suppose how that has kind of affected my writing is that there is always an absence, often there's an absent male figure in my writing. Um, and I've also discovered that uh, when people tell stories and they, they sort of tell you all about your mum, it's the person you leave out that readers find most interesting. So we'd say, well, do you have a dad? So I give all that nearing in things I don't want to know. Okay. One more question. Alex. Yeah, do you read aloud your work as you write it, or is it, does it just arrive as delicious as it sounds? <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I do. Um, not, not, or not, I don't read the whole manuscript out, but if there's something that just isn't working and I can't get it right, I do read it a- aloud. And, um, and that helps, because, you, you know, we, we, were, we know, don't we, when we were... Uh, thinking about what we were going to read, you tend to cross out, even even when it's published. You're sort of crossing out words and um, making things scan differently. And that's not necessarily because it shouldn't be like that on the page. It's just reading it out. It needs the cadence that's fallen in various ways. But I do think it's interesting to for writers to read their work out loud when they write, especially new writers... Because the thing is, most of us hate to hear our voice. We feel really uncomfortable hearing our voice. But for writers, that's the voice we're working with. So um, I think it's a good thing to do. That's a great place to leave it. I want to thank Deborah Levy. I want to thank Lottie Morgan, Susie Boy, and all of you for being here tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you all for being here and we'll see you in September at Shoreditch House.